Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. Hey, it's Dan here. You are listening to a bonus edition of Market Call. That's the MKT Call. Guy Adami and I do it every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern live for 30 minutes. It streams on Twitter Live, on Risk Reversal Media's YouTube page, and on Open Exchange TV Live. You can follow us on Twitter at MKT Call to get the link there. But please enjoy this version in the On the Tape feed today. We thought it was a really important day in the markets. And we wanted to share our commentary. Thanks a lot. People, top of the hour, 1 p.m. on the East Coast. We're putting 30 minutes on the clock that you don't see, but I have it in my head because that's how I roll. I'm Guy Adami. I'm joined by Dan Nathan. This is Market Call. Presenting sponsors for this show, CME Group, Dan, where risk meets opportunity. And, of course, open exchange because, as we all have come to learn, they manage the virtual meetings that matter for the top companies around the world. And, Dan, over the course of the last three and a half, four hours or so, the topsy-turvy nature of this market continues. Yeah, it's been a little nuts. I mean, the overnight session was crazy with the uh, with the futures here. And on Tuesdays, we look at the market through the lens of the futures. You know why, guy? Because CME Group, they are our sponsor, along obviously with Open Exchange. We like to talk about the products that they trade on CME and many of their other um, exchanges here. Guy, it's been a wild, actually, night in, in the markets. And I think, you know, again, I think a lot of investors have been kind of lulled um, into sleep over the last couple of years or so. We were kind Kind of getting our arms around the pandemic and all the kind of monetary stimulus and all the stuff that came with that as it relates to markets the the playbook was by the dip right i mean you know we, we knew that there was a fed put we knew that there was a lot of fiscal stimulus this sort of market's different we got risk assets of all sorts going in all different directions and there are knock-on effects which is one of the reasons why today's theme and i kind of touched on it a little bit guy yesterday on the market call I said you kind of had this really good crystal ball over the last few months. You've been calling for certain risk assets to go to different places. And here's the thing, bro. I'm calling you. I'm kind of hashtagging this thing. You're Nostradami. And I'm just going to lay out really quickly what you have been saying. You've been saying consistently on Market Call that gold's not going to be a thing until it's a thing and it's going back to 2000, going to make new highs. You've been saying that crude oil was going to get to 100 and then probably skip quickly to 120 or 130. this is before Ukraine. You were saying that the 210 spread, the two-year treasury yield versus the 10-year, was one of 30 basis points. And now you've been saying for months that you think 3750 is in the cards for the S&P 500. What's going on here, guy? Well, I love Your the snow market. globe. I mean, is that's a snow globe, right? That's the thing. No, it, 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 and, it's not. And, no, it's, it's not, not a snow globe. Oh, it's a crystal ball. There well, you go. look, I mean, you know, blind squirrel, I would put that under. A lot of people have been saying the same things. But in terms of gold, I thought it was just a matter of time before we saw it. Here we are. By the way, I don't think it's over by any stretch. Crude oil, you talked about it yesterday. A lot of potential for a short-term blow-off top. 
The one that scares me the most, Dan, is two tens coming into 30 basis points. Yeah. And by the way, we thought it would happen in the form of 1.5% in the two-year, 1.8% in the 10-year, and pretty much that's exactly what happened. As a matter of fact, I think twos, tens actually got down to about 22 basis points or so. We'll see how that plays out. The last one has not come to fruition yet, yeah. and that's 37.50 in the S&P 500. And obviously, we're bouncing here. And people say, what are we bouncing on the back of? I don't, I don't think it was the president's speech or whatever he just did. I think it was the fact that there were some stories out that Ukraine said that NATO and, and, you know, being a member of NATO is no longer important to them or something to that effect. That, to me, is the olive branch that they're putting out there. The question is, do the Russians accept that olive, olive branch? Yeah, and I guess the other point I'll just say with the S&P down 12%, um, you know, if you're looking at all of this news through the lens of the stock market, you'd say that all of that uncertainty and the fact that we're only down 12% really doesn't speak to panic yet. And I'm not trying to induce panic by any means, but you and I have traded through many different markets in the late 90s, the Asian, um, you know, sovereign debt crisis, the Russian sovereign debt crisis, the implosion after, um, you know, 2000, the dot-com bubble, the financial crisis, here in the U.S., which was a rolling crisis through Europe, you know, in the early parts of the of that decade after, you know what I mean? So we kind of know what some of the telltale signs are. Let's look at this crude move really quickly. We're going to look at it through three lenses. You just mentioned that gap yesterday up nearly 10 percent. It had to be one of the biggest one day gaps. I think the issue at the time was the threats that the U.S., U.K. and much of Europe might ban uh, Russian imports, uh, imports of oil um, and natural gas. Well, it came Came off and filled in a lot of that gap. But here we are today, where even with the news coming out that we are going to phase out the import of those, we're still rallying here, guy. Thoughts here, because on a one-year basis, if you look at this thing, it's absolutely gone parabolic in the last few weeks from basically 90 to 130-ish. Well, that, that announcement, by the way, as counterintuitive as this might sound, it's actually bullish for oil. I mean, it's, I know it sounds crazy, but you know that's the position that we find ourselves in. So if you're to ban oil, take that out of um, circulation, the price is going to go higher. It's just a supply-demand thing. And by the way, that actually plays right into Russia's hands. That's, not, that's neither here nor there. What do I make of it? You know, I do think you will see a period of time, you know, a three- or four-day period of time where crude can trade down 25 to 30% and still be in this bull market. I'm not saying it's today, but we're clearly on the precipice of it. I do think that we will still see higher prices from this point. I just think we'll get there from lower prices, probably in the form of sort of 100 to 105, and we'll see what happens. I mean, nothing goes up in a straight line until it does, and then it typically back and fills. So that's at the point we're at right now, Dan, in my opinion, which is why you know, we're seeing reversals in some of these underlying ETFs and equities as well. Yeah, no doubt about it. Let's quickly look at the long-term chart. This is not a long chart here, but you kind of get a sense for where we're approaching, um, you know, the prior all-time highs in crude, or at least going back, you know, 20 years or so. And we saw that epic collapse in 08 um, in early 09. And we know that the run-up had a whole heck of a lot to do with China and stimulus there. And, um, you know, that was driving a lot of that price appreciation. It took a, a global recession to kind of kill the price of crude here. But this um, this this tweet from Ed Yardeni, our Yardeni research, I thought it's interesting. It's something worth kind of talking about. He's saying the surge in commodity prices resulting from Putin's war is likely to pre- uh, pro- uh, 
depressed, excuse me, easy for me to say, guy. Consumers spending now that they will have to spend much more on gasoline and food. What is your take on that? I said it last night on Fast Money. It's like you think about the monetary and the fiscal stimulus uh, during the pandemic. We threw $4 trillion at a consumer and enterprise or, or corporate balance sheets are in really good shape. I suspect we can kind of hold on or with, withstand higher gas at the pump for the time being, guy. This comes into consumer behavior stuff, and I happen to agree with you, but it's funny. You know, when eggs go up, when egg, the price of eggs double, nobody yeah. really says anything. When the price of milk, nobody says a word. When crude oil goes up the way it's gone up, everybody is talking about it. Crude oil seems to be the barometer with which people view inflation, and their spending pattern stops. So I'm with them on this one, not because of necessarily the economic impact it has, but the psychological impact it has, and I think... A lot of people in power understand that. This chart, though, Dan, I think is the exact right chart. You know, can we continue to move up to that 150 level or so that we cascaded down from beginning of the financial crisis? Yeah, I think we will. It's just a question of where do we get there from. But I think Ed is smart to point that out. But for me, Dan, crude oil is much more a psychological commodity that it is an actual dollars and cents thing, if that makes sense. Well, and to your point, Guy, if crude were to crash, it might be crashing with lower demand if the if the economy or the global economy were going to a recession. And that's not exactly good for the consumers, too. And you make the point all the time that, you know, the stock market is obviously one of those very important inputs to consumers, whether they own stocks or not. Because we know what happens if the stock market comes in meaningfully in a short period of time or over a longer protracted period of time, we know that other assets like housing where a lot of consumers have a lot of their you know wealth tied up into so it really does have a huge knock-on effect or a negative uh, wealth effect if the stock market starts going down all right guy you just mentioned the reversal though um today in some of these um energy uh equities let's just real quickly look at the xle that's the etf the charge tracks large integrated names exxon and chevron make up 40 percent of it um got back to those highs made in 16 17 and 18 got above it it has reversed since we printed these charts a little bit here curious your take on the large integrateds, and then obviously we're going to hit the oih the oil services which looks very different than the xle these were all really compelling names on valuation. They were also compelling names in terms of where they traded historically versus the underlying commodity. They were all too cheap. I mean, when I say all, you're right, Dan, to point out Exxon and Chevron, which is, I think right now is 45% of that ETF, which doesn't really speak that well, the ETF, but that's not what we're here for. With that said, now things have come a little more in line. Now valuations seem to make a little more sense, and at least these underlying equities have caught up to the underlying commodity, which is why this is a logical level for it to stop. I mean, this goes back five and six years, these level of resistance. It makes sense. So if you're initiating a long position here, in my opinion, Dan, I think you're trading wrong. This is the level where we should be taking money off the table and looking for another entry point. With that said, if, my, if I'm wrong about this and this thing continues to sort of uh, cascade higher or just basically rocket higher, I should say, then you look to buy the breakout. And the breakout comes in the form of this sort of 80-ish dollar level in the XLE, which we're right up against right now. All right. So talk about breakouts. You want to see an epic breakout in yes, the OIH. Like 
the OIH, yeah. the Oil Services. Uh-huh. And this thing is still down 70-some percent from its all-time highs made in 2014. You were calling for it. I give you a lot of credit. I was looking to fade these things. I did not think we were going to have the sort of move in the underlying commodity. And I did not think that we would have the commensurate demand um, also with the kind of whole notion of a global reflation trade. But look at this thing. Take the OIH ticker off of it, guy, and throw something else that you like on there. And you're like, you know what? I'm buying that thing going to 400. Mm -hmm. Well, what's interesting about this is, I mean, we just looked at the XLE. We talked about the names basically that comprise that. This one is comprised basically of three names. It's Halliburton, Schlumberger, and to a lesser extent, Baker Hughes. And the reason I bring that up is because when this thing peaked in 2014 on this chart, those companies weren't run particularly well. I mean, they got the benefit of the commodity, but there wasn't, it wasn't like they were running efficient companies. Now they've been forced to be better companies, obviously during covid Obviously, the ESG thing going to all nat- you know, natural resources and those types of things, renewable resources, that put a real um, clamp on these names. They were forced to operate better. Now the environment is in sort of creating a tailwind for them, and these stocks are taking off. I would submit that all these stocks are still too cheap, but it makes sense, again, sort of this 285 to 300 level to be paring down risk, in my opinion. But you know, yeah. you're quick to point out, Dan. There's a lot of room to the upside here with crude at the current levels. Yeah, and I would also say, guy, you know, if you had to check back maybe to that breakout level, like I think you're talking about maybe 280 or something like that, you might look to maybe reestablish a position. That being said, it has come a long way. It's gone from 200 at the start of this year up to 300. I think it's really important to point that out. We're looking at a 20-year chart. All right, let's look at the S&P 500 futures, guy, because like we said, the overnight session was really volatile. At one point, I think we were down a little more than 1%, and then by the open, we got to about uh, even, and then we were down, and now we're up. Up one and a half percent or so. Um, this chart we talked about it yesterday in market call. It is in this downtrend. It's well defined. You made the point yesterday, and I thought it was a really good one. For the prior eighteen months, though, it was in a beautiful forty-five degree angle uptrend. And um, you know, here we are now. We're only down about twelve percent from those highs. What's interesting to me about this chart of the futures is that if you look at that downtrend, you look at where it hits. It hits thirty-eight hundred. That was the exact low one year ago today. You've been calling, Nostradami has been calling for 3750 uh, in the S&P 500 here. Do we get there? Because to me, 4400 is massive technical resistance. You see the 200-day moving average right up above that. And you and I are both in agreement that the big names, the generals, they have not given it up yet. Yeah, I think this, listen, again, my opinion, I think this bounce in the broader market today, maybe tomorrow, is going to be a gift longer term because... Nothing's changed other than, you know, a couple of headlines that have come out. I mean, technically, the market was probably overdone. Sentiment was probably such that people were looking for a reason to get out of things and buy things. And I think that's what we're seeing here. And I do think we'll see that 3750 level that we talked about for a while. It's a good opportunity, Dan, to turn the tables and ask you a question from one of our viewers. This is Plant E More, I think. I don't know. I mean, love the handle. Risk reversal media. What do you think about VIX finally creating a downtrend? From the January 24th candle, um, I didn't notice that, but I appreciate you pointing it out. I've been long VIX with higher lows and higher highs it's made. Thinks he can sell some here. I think that's not a bad idea, by the way. I'm not. I'm curious as to your thoughts, Dan. But anytime the VIX has got meaningfully over sort of the 30 level, in the short term at least, it's been an opportunity to sell volatility. And you're probably uh, looking at that now. I do think VIX goes higher over the next couple months, but we might be at a point now where it could back and fill into the t- mid-20s. 
Yeah, I think your point, and you know, guy, you and I've been doing, I've been doing fast money with you for 10 years. The last you've been on it for 15 years. And I've never, not once heard you say, I think you buy the hit, the VIX anywhere in the high 30s. I'm just telling you. And I don't really talk a whole heck of a lot about the VIX because to me, you know, it, it's not that important. I'm looking at a lot of option premiums and the underlyings that I'm trading um, for the most part. So the VIX is not really that important of an input to me. But I get your question. I think it's an important one. And I think, guys, Again, you know, he's saying that I'm not looking to initiate long vol positions with in the mid 30s in the VIX. That being said, it could go higher. And I think look at the price action today. When you see those sorts of intraday moves, you could say even on a big green day, where you expect the VIX to get smushed. You might not because you're seeing a lot of this intraday volatility and all the potential for tape bombs overnight is the sort of thing that's likely to keep it elevated, at least in the high 20s, maybe around 30. And to Guy's point, even if you get to 30, if the market rallies, let's say 5% off the lows, one bad headline and you have this thing above 40 very quickly. So I'm kind of in Guy's camp um, on that. And let's just real quickly, you know, Guy, what we're talking about all this near-term volatility. Let's look at a long-term chart of the S&P. 500. We have a tweet from a guy named George Noble. You and I have both been on a couple um, of his, uh, I guess, Twitter spaces, and he does a great job. He's a former fund manager um, at Fidelity. I think he was a big fund manager over there, but he's a really smart guy. And he said, look at the price and more importantly, the duration. Time would be the killer for sentiment and particularly the momentum stocks return free risk. I like that. You probably like that too. And one of the things I'll just say, and you and I have talked about this a lot, okay, and I might have talked about it on one of George's spaces, is that for me, me living through the post-dot-com implosion and the subsequent bear market that we had and then the same after the global financial crisis is like it was those second years of those downturns that were really brutal and we just had and to your point about the fed manufactured downturns at least you know because the fed just comes in and they throw everything they have at it the fact that the covid 19 downturn 35 percent in less than two months and then we just v reversed and within a few months we're making you know new highs or we're back to those levels it's just crazy and if we're really going to have the sort of correction necessary to get a lot of those ills out of the behavior of a lot of investors it's going to take some time you agree with that a hundred percent this is really important the average duration for those things that are lined up there since the great depression are 20 months let's just call it 20 months round down and the one month is a complete anomaly. So if even you back that out, I'll still give you the 20 months. And then you say to me, guy, things move faster now than they used to. Okay, I'll give you that. But with that said, even if you cut those 20 months in half and then on the left say, you know what? This period of time is Fed changing course, Russian invasion of Ukraine, heightened inflation. Those would be your what's. You're talking about something that should last theoretically anywhere from 10 to 15 months. And we're just at the beginning of it. So... I think that's really important. That's one I want to sort of earmark for later use, because what you're saying is right. I mean, we're at the precipice of something, in my opinion. And that, to me, is a change of course, not only with the Federal Reserve, but a change of course in the market as well, Dan Nathan. Yeah, and I guess, listen, you could say, and a lot of strategists have said this, that this bear market has been, you know, it's probably six to nine months. And if you look at a lot of stocks in some of the broader indices here, look at the NASDAQ here. We know that the NASDAQ futures closed down 20% from their highs in late November. That was yesterday. We see that support level going back 
13,000 to last May or so. So you can say, you know, 20%. You and I don't talk like that, but some of the headlines will say NASDAQ in a bear market, that sort of thing. So for us, what's most important is like, how long does it take to really find a bottom here? Do you know what I'm saying? And so to me, you know, again, that goes back to that whole time thing. I don't think a lot of those stocks that are down 60, 70% that were kind of winners of the pandemic that saw some of their products and services massively accelerated. I just don't think they're ever going back to those highs or not anytime soon soon. So it should take a while to get back to those all time highs. But it's really going to take those prior um, winners or the big ones that you know, the MAGA names, the Microsoft, the Apple, the Google, the Amazon, which act relatively um, better here than a lot of those other names. But guy, one of the defining factors, and this is where you kind of earn that Nostradamus thing, you said the two year or the 10 year Treasury yield was going to 2%. Um, you thought that the two year was going um, up precipitously, you got that one right too here. The CME FedWatch, this is what it's all about, though, right now, because you thought the Fed should have taken their pedal off the metal a very long time ago, looked to normalize interest rates, should not have been buying all those bonds, $120 billion a month or so. A month ago, the CME FedWatch was pricing in maybe a 50-50 chance that the Fed might raise 50 basis points, guy, all right? So now it's basically not pricing that at all. It's just basically saying 25. What do you think the chance with all of these commodities, we're going to talk about a few of them more in a second, with all of them making all-time highs and just going up parabolically, that they actually try to surprise the market, shock the system, and do 50 basis point at that March meeting? Yeah, I, listen, whether I think they should or not is not the point. I think given what's the backdrop of the geopolitical stuff, even if they considered it, they're not going to do it now because they don't want to add fuel to what is obviously a bit of a market fire right now. So if you're asking me, I think there's a 0% chance, in my opinion, they do 50, even though they probably should. And this leads us to a really great question from Paul. By the way, Paul is a buddy of mine. I've known him for a long time. The world's largest wheat exporter, Russia, has invaded the world's fifth largest wheat exporter, Ukraine. By the way, Ukraine is, I think, the fourth largest commodity producer on the planet. Across the entire suite of commodity inflation, how can the Fed possibly wriggle out of this? The bind they put us all in. Now, he's obviously leading me down a road because he knows how I feel. The answer is they can't. And I think they know it. And that, to Dan, answer your question... I mean, they are forced to move. They've absolutely been forced to move. And I think a lot of people out there, Paul and the rest of our audience, think maybe given what's going on, the Fed's going to do a 180 from their prior 180 in November. And I'd say absolutely no way. If the situation between Russia and Ukraine magically stops, guess what? That's inflationary. And if it continues, guess what? That's inflationary. In either circumstances, they're screwed and they have to move. And they're going to be rising into a slowdown. They created this. I didn't. So if you're pissed off at me, take your anger someplace else there, peeps. Back All right. You, I, I, you know I'm not pissed at you. But then this this tweet, though, is going to get you kind of all fired up again. And this is from Lisa Bromovitz at Bloomberg. And I thought this was really interesting. It said this chart is showing concern in some pockets of Wall Street, some pockets of Wall Street, guy. Real yields on the 10-year U.S. Treasury have plunged back to below negative mm-hmm. 1%, despite the broadly held belief that the Fed will still normalize policy in even and still, U.S. stocks sold off yesterday the most since 2020. And I think what's interesting about that is that what you're talking about, negative 1% yields, I mean, we thought that that had the potential to be really negative for growth, right? When we saw global yields all over the planet, right, negative. I think it got to about $17 trillion, $18 trillion, is that right, of sovereign um, negative yielding debt. So this, is, this kind of complicates things, too, in a way, because it, it should cause them to get more aggressive on the rate hike. Of course right. you should. 
Listen, at one point, I think 37% of global sovereign bonds had negative yields. Just think about that for a minute. And that was a couple of years ago. And we were having much different conversations. Let me just address this real quick. The headline CPI number, the last one that came out, inflation number, the one that all these geniuses look at, was 7.5%. I will tell you right now, you double that, and that's probably where real inflation in this country is right now, which makes this chart exactly spot on. Real yields, they think they're doing something they're not. They're so far behind the curve, it's staggering. And again, and you look at what real wages are in this country, they're negative as well. And who created this? These geniuses did. So what does this mean to me? It means they're going to have to move and they have to move in a meaningful, long duration time, regardless, Dan, of what happens in the stock market. The stock market's going to sell off this time and they're not going to be here to backstop it. Again, just my opinion. You know, Guy, I mean, for some of our viewers here who've been watching you for years prior to the pandemic. Do you see me getting No, but prior to the pandemic, man, you know, when we were talking about the Fed, the Fed was dying to get inflation up to 2%. Yeah, be careful what you wish for. How many times have I said, be careful what you wish for? Because you're going to get it and you're not going to be able to control it. And that's what you we're did, seeing. See, now I'm getting, now that. I'm losing my effing mind, Dan. Sorry. Nostradami over here. You saw something coming. Maybe it was a pandemic. Maybe it was a war. But you, you also rightly pointed out on many occasions that they're just not looking at the right place. And you talked about education. You talked about healthcare. You talked about housing. And that was all happening there. So to your point, man, you were saying it for a long time. I give you credit. They were focused on the wrong stuff. Let's quickly look at this 10-year U.S. Treasury yield because, you know, off of that August 2021 low, it was about, I don't know, just below 1.2. The prior August, it get down to 50 basis points. So we had this nice move. You were saying that we would kind of hold the line, stay with me, get to 2%. When it got to 2%, you thought there was a good chance that we'd see a flight to quality among global investors looking for U.S. Treasuries. Now that this Ukraine invasion happened here, um, here we are. We're kind of holding in here a little bit. What would it mean to you? Even Let's say the Fed goes 25 basis points to their March meeting, okay? Let's just say all of these um, inflationary forces start to kind of lower consumer confidence. We see basically lower capbacks and we see a lot of stuff going on. And then we are in that thing that you and I and our friend Danny Moses on our podcast on the tape have been talking about since last summer, the potential for a stagflationary environment. Mm-hmm. Where does the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield go if that's what we are kind of faced with? One and a quarter percent. I mean, it'll break that one and a half percent trend line and it'll start to go lower under those set of circumstances. By the way, it's not that far fetched. I mean, what the 10 year was telling you for a long time. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Inflation, inflation. And then we talked about it with when people realize what's going on, the stock market's going to sell off and you will see that flight to quality in the form of bond yields, bond yields going back down. The Fed controls the front end of the curve. The market controls everything else, and they are completely screwed because they're going to be hiking into a 10-year yield that's to be going down. They're going to invert the yield curve themselves. So there's no elegant way. There's no artful way. There's no elegant way. There's no smart way out of this because they created over decades of largesse, and now they're going to have to pay the piper. And there's no way to get out of it. I mean, people say there's a way for them. There's no way for them to thread this needle. Zero. Yeah, yes, well, zero. And there's you say, well, there's always a chance. There ain't no chance. And you know what, Dan? 
if they don't know it, they're dumb. And if they do know it, they're not, they're not fessing up. Either one is not particularly good. All right. Well, that's what you call a pretty good segue. You talked about the yield curve, the 210 spread. Pretty interesting. Let's go back 20 years here, Guy. You see the last time it inverted was 2006. And you know what happened. The stock mm-hmm. market topped out in 2007. And it took 17 months after a 50% peak to drop decline or 56 or so in the S&P 500 um, to get back um, going out of that bear market. And then in 2019, this was a curious one here, man. And a lot of people didn't see it. They're like, this time is different. But in 2020, uh, we did have a recession and we did have a pretty mighty drop in the S&P 500. It took $4 trillion of monetary and fiscal stimulus to kind of get things back in its footing. If we were to invert in 2022, Guy, would you be very confident that we would be going into a recession this time? By definition, what is recession? Two two continuous quarters of negative GDP, yeah. right? So, I mean, yeah. if by the textbook, I mean, would I, I, you know, I guess. I mean, I think to me, recession means more like how do people feel about things and where's yeah. consumers think? You know, what is the boots on the ground saying? So, by the by the definition, I don't know, Dan. I say it all the time. I'm not smart enough nor humorless enough to be an economist, <laughs> but it certainly feels as though we're setting up for that, given all the backdrops and the things we're seeing. I mean, this slowing growth is real. Yeah. People are obviously going to be strapped given these higher costs, not just with energy, but with everything around energy, including food, including housing, including all those things. It's a real problem. Yeah. Well, I guess the other point is, is like, and you make this all the time, is it the stock market decline that causes a recession or plays into it? And it really does feel like this time around, if we were to see the S&P down 20, 25% and to stay down and chop, that would be the thing that would cause it. All right. Nostradami, we got only a couple mm. minutes here. Um, gold. You were saying, and I kind of ridiculed you in good nature, in in good nature. I'd make fun of your age. You used to trade it back in the 80s and everything like that. You were saying gold, 2000. All right, here's the deal. This is not a long chart either, but it lines up with my lines pretty good. You see that resistance level guy from the 2010 high, the 2020 high. You see that move that we just had parabolic. Does it get through there? And who cares about that support line? But the 200-day moving average is down there at 1813. Yeah. Well, I'm going to say yes, we do. Um, and it could be a number of different things. And one of the questions leads to that is from Robert. What's the deal with nickel and all these other industrial uh, metals? And the deal is a lot of people got themselves way offside. Just for just for a form of reference, you know, Dan, we talk about standard deviation moves and things. When we see a two or a three standard deviation move in something, that's like huge headline stuff. And when, when it does happen, we talk about it. We saw over the last 48 hours a 30 standard deviation move in nickel. Forget about what I've seen. It's never been seen before. As a matter of fact, the London Metals Exchange had to stop trading in nickel. It's it's unprecedented stuff. So why do I bring that up? Because similar could happen to gold here. And you're going to think, I'm one of these tinfoil wearing hat people. Yeah, I totally get it. I just think we're on the precipice of something pretty big in gold. I think you're getting it with base metals. I think you're going to see it with gold and silver as well, Dan. Well, then our friend Peter Bookvar from Blinkley Advisors, he tweeted this this morning, nickel and parabolic move, aluminum, zinc, palladium have ripped higher, gold back above 2,000, and silver still about 50% below its record high. Hmm, okay, we'll play that one for a breakout above 30. That looks really interesting. Uh, Peter's been a silver bull for a while here. Guy, lastly, let's look at the Bitcoin Mm. here. It found a lot of resistance at that breakdown level from early January, 45,000. It's 
holding that 35,000 line. I think that'll be a really interesting one, um, too. It got that bounce when the sanctions came along here, but that is getting into a narrower, narrower challenge channel. And you and I both said a couple times when it got up towards 45,000, we thought it would fail. Some of the reasons that people were buying Bitcoin have not been holding up in this back row environment. All right, that was 30 minutes on the clock. Whoa. Take us out, Guy Adami, because well, this that is the, our promise to people. Yeah, we this will was get the them exercise. Out. I mean, I'm, com- oh, I'm so fired up, but this is now I'm, I'm Guy Adami. I'm normal Guy Adami. I want to thank everybody <laughs> for joining us today's market call. And this was fun, and I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks to our sponsors, CME Group, where risk meets opportunity, by the way. Uh, more so today than ever, and obviously Open Exchange, Dan, because this meeting matter, and they manage the virtual meetings that matter. Tune in tomorrow. It'll be Wednesday, same bat time, same bat place. 5,000 peeps. Yeah. <laughs>